Well, thanks again for being here tonight on this, the final night of our meeting. I want to say it's uh, always the custom of a gospel preacher on the final night of a meeting to say obligatory thanks, but uh, I hope that it comes across as more than simply uh, obligation. It truly is sincerely felt on my part uh, a deep and, and meaningful appreciation for the kind way that you've received me here among you this week. Uh, this is the third time that I've been here, and each and every time you've, you've treated me far better than I have a right to deserve, and I appreciate it so much. You've uh, fed me, you've, you've housed me, uh, you've attended carefully to the things that I've had to say, you've encouraged me. You know, you, you come as a, a preacher to hold a meeting somewhere, wherever that expression came from, holding a meeting, but you come hoping that you're going to impart some spiritual benefit and encourage the brethren where you go. Uh, but this has been one of those occasions where I hope that that's happened. But I know for sure if you've not benefited from it, I have because you have certainly built me up. The singing, the praying, uh, the things that we were able to enjoy together throughout this week have truly benefited me. And I know that as I go forward in my life, you're going to be there with me and the influence that you've had on me will carry forward. So thank you so very, very much. And I look forward to the times in the future that we'll have to spend together again. Jeremy Jenkins from Conway, living in Conway now, is here. He spent uh, a few years with us in, in Bowling Green, and uh, he heard about the meeting and, and came down here with, with his girlfriend. And uh, I think it's okay for me to say that. They're sitting pretty close to each other, so I think it's, it's pretty well known that they're, they're boyfriend and girlfriend. And uh, it's great to see him again. And like I say, you, you meet people, you get to know people, they become a part of who you are. And it's a really interesting thing that it truly is uh, something that, that, that uh, sinks down into your personality, the people that you meet, the people that you know, and that carries with you on into the future. And I think your influence on me this week has certainly been something that's positive. And uh, some of us are going to see each other again. In this world, I'm confident of that. Brother Shiflet can't get rid of me. He's had to see me like five different times now in, in the gospel meetings that he and I have been a part of together through the years. Uh, and I trust that some of us are going to see one another again face-to-face -face in this world. But it may well be the case that some of us won't see one another again in this life. But I trust that we'll see one another again in the life that is to come. And that's what really matters. I've grown to appreciate and love you and certainly want to be with you in heaven and with the Lord forever. So let's, uh, let's work toward that end. Well, we've been engaged in a series of lessons each weeknight that we're calling When the Waves Keep Coming. And it's uh, taken from Psalm 42. Are you tired of me reviewing this every time? Uh, you're probably tired of it by now, but you're going to remember it for a while. Uh, uh, they say that repetition is the mother of learning. And, and when the waves keep coming, that comes from where? It comes from Psalm 42, doesn't it? Where the, the psalmist describes the difficulties, the adversity, the trouble that he was facing in life were, were coming like waves that just kept breaking over him and one right after another. And life can feel like that sometimes. And so we need lifelines or life preservers that can keep us afloat when life's trying to drag us under the water. And so when life gets rough, God gives us some truths that we can hold on to. And we've looked at three of those and a fourth one tonight 
First, we saw that it's not supposed to be this way. God originally created the world for blessing. It was a good creation, and there was not sin, sorrow, suffering, and death that we experience, but we sinned, and God had to implement a redemptive plan to hopefully restore things to what they were originally intended to be, and we hope one day to see every tear wiped away and every eye dry and God to dwell among his people again in an immediate way as it was there in the beginning, so shall it be uh, and even better in the days to come. And so I think, I think it helps us when we're going through those hard, difficult times to remember that this isn't the way that it was originally designed to be. And as we'll see tonight, it's not the way that it's forever going to be. But we also notice that we don't have to do this alone. And isn't it good that as we go through the journey, through this veil of tears, through the difficulties, the ups and downs of life's uneven way, that we don't have to make this journey alone. And we should never allow ourselves to become like Elijah did, sequestered in a cave all by himself, where we just start running through our minds the most negative scenarios imaginable and begin to believe our doubts and think that the things that we knew to be true in the sunshine are now so far away that they, they simply, we simply lose sight of that. We need to remember what we knew to be true in the light when we're in the dark. And the best way to be reminded of that is to surround ourselves and engage ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ who can speak into that negative feedback loop and build us up. And then thirdly, we notice that God's not indifferent to our sufferings and sorrows. You know, so many of the people who lived in, in times gone by, I think we could, we, could almost, we could almost give them a pass for the questions that they had about whether or not God really cared about them. But you and I live on this side of the cross and this side of the incarnation when God became flesh and dwelt among us and shared our sufferings and sorrows and griefs and he wept with those who wept and rejoiced with those who rejoiced and we know because God has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ that God does care and he cares deeply about each and every one of us as his children. And then tonight, we're gonna to focus our attention on one final life preserver that can keep us afloat when life's ways get rough, when the seas of life get rough. And that's that this life is not ultimate. This life is not ultimate. That mess, this message may not resonate with everyone equally because some of us, I think, want to look at this life as if, as if it were ultimate, as if this life is all that there is. But, but even if you sort of think that way, there may be something in this message for you as well, and we'll come to that, I think, as we get toward the end of the lesson. But it's easy, I think, for us as material people living in a material world, a little echoing of the 80s there, um, to get caught up in that. And we sort of start thinking, well, you know, maybe this life kind of is all there is. And while we may not theologically or philosophically embrace that sort of outlook, it's easy for us to kind of just absorb it from our culture. And one of the ways that I think we reflect that is that we all have our bucket list, don't we? <laughs> Most of us have this bucket list. And that's an interesting phrase. It's, it's like a 21st century spin on a 18th century slang term for death. Uh, apparently, and there's some controversy about this, and this is like the preacher said, 
you get this for free of charge, a little extra thrown in, that if you were about to be executed by hanging, they would often just have you stand on a bucket, and when the executioner kicked the bucket, that was it for you. And so we kind of picked up on that expression that from the past, kicking the bucket, and we have our bucket list that is all the things that we want to experience. Maybe it's all the things you want to accomplish. Maybe it's all the things, the sights that you want to see and the sensations that you want to experience. And and you're desperate to make sure that you get as many things, if not all the things on your bucket list, checked off before you kick the bucket. And the interesting thing about that is it's sort of a not-so-subtle way of saying this life is ultimate. Because when the bucket gets kicked, it's lights out, and your consciousness just fades to black, and whatever you did not experience during your brief period of time on this world is never going to be experienced. If you miss out on it in the here and now, you just missed out on it forever and forever because this life is ultimate and death is the final word. When it is over, it is over. That's the way the secularist would have us to think. And I think, again, it's just easy for us to begin to absorb that sort of personality, that into our personality and think in terms of that. But then if you're at a place in your life where you're beginning to recognize that all the items on your bucket list are likely not going to be checked off, and things just haven't quite turned out for you the way that you had imagined them to turn out for you when you were younger and more naive, and before all of the gut punches that life has a way of delivering to us begin to accumulate in your life, and now you're facing a situation where you're not sure if your marriage is going to even survive, And if it does, it's not going to be the kind of marriage that you had hoped and dreamed that it might be. Or your dream and desire to have children may not ever be something that you're going to fulfill or experience. Or maybe you're not going to be able to attend that college or that university or that athletic or academic program that you thought you would be able to participate in when you were a few years younger. Or maybe your health has come under attack and There are things now on your list that you didn't put there and you don't want there, but there they are. These are a part of the reality that you're living through. And when that's the case, the fact that this life is not ultimate may become exactly the lifeline, the life preserver that you need to keep you afloat. You know, when I think about people who went through difficult times, I not only think about Elijah and John the Baptist and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, those that we've talked about this week, but I also think about the Apostle Paul and all of the troubles that he went through. And I know that he's one of the most inspiring characters in all of history to me. And he has been for many of you as well. And it's not because he lived, again, a trouble-free, picture-perfect life. It's because in spite of all of the waves that kept rolling over him, he just kept popping back up. He had these life preservers in place that just kept him rising to the surface over and over again. No matter how rough life got, he refused to surrender and go under. And that inspires me. You know, there's some people that we look at and we may admire their life, we may envy their life because it does seem like they have this wrinkle-free existence and everything just seems to work out for them. 
And that's a bit sometimes far removed from our reality or we think even that we're somewhat intimidated by the example that they set because we just seem to be incapable of mustering the kind of discipline that they manifest. But the Apostle Paul is much more approachable in some ways to me because of the difficulties that he engaged in and because of the transparency that he spoke with about the struggles that he encountered. I think that's interesting because we have an interesting balance struck for us in the New Testament in the life of Paul. You have the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, who was a companion of Paul's. And Luke was such an admirer of Paul. And he would write down about so many experiences that Paul had. And from the outside perspective, from Luke's perspective, it, it sort of just seemed like Paul was this man made of Teflon. He just, you know, nothing would stick to him. He just, he could just get through anything. He could just shake it off. You know, he talks about, in fact, when he was on the island of Malta after they'd been shipwrecked, he was gathering some firewood and a, a viper bit his hand. I mean, that's pretty crazy. A viper bit his hand and it says that he just shook it off. You just, you guys ever just shake it off? You know, you tell each other, Hey, shake it off. You know, rub some dirt on it, man. Put a stake on there. Shake it off. And that's what, that's what Luke says Paul did. He just shook it off. And everybody expects him to die, and he doesn't get sick. He doesn't swell up. He doesn't die. And then, then they're all thinking, well, he must be some kind of a god. So that's what it looked like to Luke from the outside. Paul went here. He went there. He did that. And everything's just, man, he just keeps on charging through everything, and nothing seems to phase him. But then we have the book of 2 Corinthians the most autobiographical of all of Paul's writings. And what he does there is he, he gives us a look on the inside. Luke tells us what it looked like from the outside, but Paul describes in 2 Corinthians what it felt like on the inside. The Olympics are going on right now, and you watch certain people do these things that are just uh, amazing, but sometimes they are so amazing you kind of think, it, doesn't, it must not be that hard. You know, I could probably do that. And then you actually look at a balance beam and you see that, you know, it's like this wide. And you couldn't even walk from one end of it to the other, much less do a cartwheel or a double flip or whatever it is that they do on those kinds of things. And people can make it look easy from the outside, but if you knew what was going on on the inside, you'd know that this is extraordinarily difficult. You have that in the Old Testament with David in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. You get descriptions from the outside. He's out there slaying giants. He's out there dealing with Saul, dealing with enemies. And he's just going from place to place, accomplishing whatever it was that was set before him. But in the Psalms, you get a look on how it felt to be David on the inside. And that's what we get with Paul in 2 Corinthians. And here are some of the waves and breakers that kept coming and sweeping over Paul, that he describes what it was like from the inside. Uh, I actually forgot something. Let me back up for just a moment before we get to Paul. It's not every day you get to um, put a beer commercial in your sermon, so I don't want to miss this opportunity. Uh, those of us who are of my vintage remember Schlitz beer. How many of y'all right now, don't, 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 raise, don't raise your hand, but... Schlitz beer was a beer manufacturer, apparently not very good, very good stuff. But anyway, 
Uh, I honestly don't know about that. Maybe some of you can tell me afterwards your private experience. But uh, in all seriousness, they had a, uh, this tagline with all their commercials back in the 80s or 70s, I think it was. Uh, and they would say, you only go around once. So grab for all the gusto that you can. You only go around once, so grab for all the gusto you can. You're only going to be on this planet for a little while, so you've got to make everything count while you're here because, once again, once it's over, it's over. Reminds me of the Dead Poet Society movie with Robin Williams back in the late 80s. I'm getting a lot of cultural references tonight. Um, where he takes these boys that he's a teacher in a prep school and he takes them out and he shows them the pictures of their predecessors. And he tells these young boys, he says, all of these guys are now dead. And very soon you will be too. You're going to be worm, uh, worm food, he tells them. And so you need to suck the marrow out of life today. Carpe diem is, I think, the phrase that he used. Seize the day. And the idea was very much this idea. Go for all the gusto you can because this life is ultimate. Well, again, Paul shows us a different perspective. And he shows us, as I said a moment ago, all of the, the trials and troubles that this life can bring. And we want to focus on that for a little while tonight. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9, he describes, again, his experience on the inside as he faced the trials from the outside. He says, we're hard-pressed on every side. It's going to be hard for me to get through this on time because every phrase just sparks things in my imagination. Have you ever been under pressure? You ever feel the, the pressure? And one way or another, all of us are going to face times and trials in our life where it's, that's the best word you can describe. It's, it's, it's pressure. And he says, we were facing pressure on every side. It's like the waves were coming from every direction, from the front, from the back, from this side and that. Everywhere we turned, it was pressure. And yet he says, we weren't crushed. But we felt the pressure. Think about a submarine that goes under the water and they speak about a crush depth. You ever heard that expression? A crush depth. That they're designed to go to a certain depth, but if they exceed that depth, the pressure becomes so great that it will just crush the submarine like a Coke can. And Paul says, we were feeling the pressure but there was something inside of us exerting an equal force, maybe something greater than the pressure that was being pushed on us from the outside so that though we felt the pressure, we weren't crushed. We were perplexed. I don't know how this is going to work out. I do not see a way forward. I don't know how we're going to get through this, but God's going to make a way where there is no way. And so we were perplexed, but not in despair. We never just gave up all hope. Persecuted persecuted. People meant us harm and did everything they could to knock us out. Persecuted, but not abandoned. A lot of people did defect Paul. A lot of people ran away. A lot of people couldn't continue on with him, but he never felt utterly abandoned because he always knew that the Lord was with him. 
struck down, but not destroyed. And then in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, he describes it this way. He says, we're servants of God, and we strive to commend ourselves to you in every way and great endurance. Paul didn't see the Christian life as a sprint, but rather his ministry was one of perseverance over the long haul. And we did it in the midst of troubles and hardships and distresses. And here he describes those distresses as beatings, imprisonments and riots, hard work and sleepless nights and hunger. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. The Jews had a limit to the number of of, of lashes they could put on a, a victim to being 40, and they would stop at 39 to make sure that they didn't transgress the law. But the Romans, who had no such limitations, beat him with rods three times. So that's eight beatings. Once he says, I was stoned by my enemies. I cannot imagine to have what it would be like, the, the PTSD that would, would undoubtedly continue with you as you see people taking large stones over their heads and bringing them down to crush your body and to, to, to take your life, and he was left for dead on this occasion, and got up and managed to walk away and recover. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. I don't know, maybe swimming with the sharks was on his, on his bucket list, but This is probably not the way he imagined it would be. Can you imagine being adrift at the open sea at night, wondering literally if the next wave is going to be the one that does you in? And then he says in chapter 11, beginning in verse 24, on frequent journeys, travel then was not like travel is today. And on those journeys, he says, I face dangers from everything you can imagine, dangers from rivers, Dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and lacking clothing. It's hard to imagine such an experience as that. And so we have this unimaginable experience of a man of God trying to do good work, trying to honor God and spread the good news of Jesus Christ in order to reach people in their, in their need who are far from God and stranded in sin and rescue them and yet facing all of these kinds of oppositions and troubles along the way. Yet he continued to stay afloat. And he says that in spite of all of this, we do not lose heart. In spite of all of these things that we are facing, we do not lose heart. Have you ever seen someone lose heart? It's one of the saddest things. Whatever it is in life, when a person reaches that point where they realize they've got to throw in the towel. Sometimes that's just the case physically. You really do reach the end of your rope. But when, when, when a person does this spiritually or when a person does this morally, and they've tried so hard and they've fought so long and they've fought so valiantly, but then for whatever reason, something just finally snaps and they just decide that it's not worth the effort anymore. But Paul inspires us again because it's in spite of it all, he says, we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away. That must have especially been true of Paul. Can you imagine if if I was the Apostle Paul and I'd been here, what was it that he decided, 2015, 2016, 15? And I'd had a stoning, a couple of beatings and imprisonments, near starvation, night and a day on the sea, and uh, then showed up. You would be looking at me and saying, Lawrence, is that, is that you? <laughs> you? You've really aged. You can kind of look like you've got a few miles of rough road behind you. And I'm, I'm certain that with Paul, that, that's very literally the way his, his outer self is just wasting away. He is in a deteriorating situation. And yet, we don't lose heart. Kind of reminds me, I don't know if you guys sing this song here. We started singing it back home a little bit. It's, it says, after all the things we've been through, I still have hope. I still have joy. I still have peace. I still have love. Paul's saying, after all these things I've been through, I've, I've still not lost heart. I haven't given up the battle. I'm continuing to press forward and run the course that the Lord has set before me. And even though it's hard, even though I'm wasting away, even though on the inside I feel the pressure that maybe Luke and others around me can't even really fully appreciate, I do not lose heart. I continue to move forward. And it's not because it was easy. It's not because it didn't hurt that bad. It's not because it wasn't any big deal. It's because our inner self is being renewed day by day. There's something happening to the outside that everybody can see And there's a struggle on the inside that nobody can see, but there's something even deeper than that that nobody knows, but the Lord does because he's the one who is at work in me, both the will and to do for his good pleasure. And there's one in me who is greater than the one who is in the world. And no matter how serious and severe and devastating the opposition or the pressure from the outside might be, the Lord is with me. He never abandons me. He never forsakes me. He always gives me strength to continue on and he renews my spirit day by day. But we might wonder specifically, well, what, Paul, is it exactly that is in you that is enabling you to to feel this renewal, this, this rejuvenation, this energy that you have to keep on coming up again after each and every successive wave. And I think the answer to that is found a few verses earlier in chapter 4 and verse 14, where Paul says, I know something. You ever in one of those situations where you get the feeling that the person you're talking to knows something that you don't know? <laughs> it's... it's uh, it's, it's why you don't ever just go out and pick a fight with a guy, right? Because you never know, he may be some Brazilian, Brazilian jiu-jitsu aficionado, right? Or if you're that Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, the other guy may have something that you don't know. He, maybe he's got a gun, so you, you, you don't know. There's something that this guy knows that I don't know. And Paul says, everyone may look at me and wonder, how does he keep going? But it's because I, I know something that maybe other people don't know. And here's what I know. I know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This is one of those verses that I just wanted to make the whole thing yellow. 
Because almost every word is just so meaningful and so powerful and so important. He first of all knows that the Lord Jesus is risen from the dead. And when Paul says, I know that, I mean, he, he, he knew it. As, as, as surely as any human being can know something, he knew it. Because if you're not familiar with the story, very quickly, he, was, he hated Jesus. He hated Christians. He hated the gospel. And he made it his life's ambition to stomp it out, to do everything within his power to, 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 to eradicate the earth of Christianity until one day on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, Jesus confronted him face to face. And this was Jesus after Jesus had been crucified, dead, and buried. Yeah, he had heard the claims that the Christians were making that he had risen from the dead and that they had been witnesses of all that, but he hadn't seen it for himself and he didn't believe a word of it until he couldn't deny it anymore because Jesus appeared to Paul personally. And he appeared to him in great glory and majesty and made himself known to Paul directly and unmistakably. And so Paul knew that the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been dead and buried, rose again and ascended to the right hand of, of God Almighty, and, and he knew that he was risen, but he also knew the promise that Jesus had made to him and to all Christians, and that is that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise all those who are in Christ with him on the last day. And Paul knew that. And there was something about that that enabled him to have the strength to carry on when other people would have folded far earlier. You know, the resurrection of Jesus, it's really important that we get this. It's, it's not that that was a, a one-of-a-kind event. It's more like it was the first-of-its-kind event. It was one of a kind in the sense that it had never happened before. I mean, yes, people had been raised to life again, as we talked about last night with Lazarus. But they were, they were raised again in, in, in their perishable form, and they would face and be subject to sickness, dying, and death again. But, but Jesus, it's as if he went into the grave and came through the other side into a new, science fiction sounding stuff, new dimension of being. And yet he was real. He was here. They could touch him. They could feel him. He could, he could eat and he could do all of these things that, that were just uh, re remarkable. And it was something that had never been seen before, but it was a first of its kind event, not a one of a kind event. And the reason that I say that is because Paul himself writes very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, what happened with Jesus in the middle of history is what is going to happen to all of those who are in Christ at the end of history when he comes again. And that's what Paul knew. And that's why he could persevere through every trial and every difficulty because he knew that the same power that had raised Jesus from the dead would also be at work within him now and raise him from the dead when this life was over. And so he would just continue to go and give himself and pour himself out for the glory of God, for the sake of the kingdom of Christ until such time as the Lord decided it was through for him.
His work was done. And he not only says that he is confident or that he knows that, that, that God will raise him up with Jesus, but that he will also bring you into his presence. It's not just something I'm going to experience, Paul says. It's something you're going to experience. And I want everyone to be able to be in on this, that we can all share together in the glorious triumph, the victory that Jesus has attained over death. I'm going to experience it, but I want you to experience it as well. And so I'm willing to suffer all these things for the sake of God's elect. And so Paul stayed afloat, persevered, and kept on running his race. He says that this perspective that he had gave him a different sort of outlook on his troubles that he faced. We see that in verse 17 here of chapter 4, where he describes all that he's been going through as his light and momentary troubles Light and momentary troubles. Can you imagine that? What's the, what's the worst ordeal that you've ever been through? Think about that. Looking back on your life, what, what's, what's the hardest, most difficult thing you've ever been through? And, and how does it stack up in comparison with what Paul has described he's gone through? And it's not that it's a comparison war. I'm just trying to help us all put this in perspective. I've never experienced hardly on any level the kinds of things that Paul experienced. And yet, so often I describe the things that I'm going through as, man, this is heavy. This is hard. I'm not sure I can, I can handle this. And it kind of puts me to shame when I think about what Paul endured and then how he described all that he went through, a stoning, a beating, a shipwreck, hunger, friends forsaking and abandoning him. And he calls them our light troubles. Well, I suppose it all has to do with a comparison and to some extent. You know, when you, when you take the things that you're struggling with, when the, the troubles that you're dealing with right now, and you put them over here, and you just look at your troubles, you just look at how hard it is to, to, to meet the challenges that you're facing right now. And the more you look at them, the bigger they get and the heavier they become. And it just starts to weigh you down, and it just seems oppressive, and it's overwhelming but he says the way he dealt with this was he, he saw them as light and momentary troubles because they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So it has to do with your perspective. So he sees all of his troubles over here, but then he looks over here and sees the glory that he's going to experience when Jesus comes and he's raised and shares in the resurrection that Christ has initiated when he experiences that and he can see it by faith, then that brings all of this into balance and not only to balance, but shifts it in the other direction. So significant, so momentous, so awesome is the glory that he sees coming in his future that he is able to look at the devastating things that he is experiencing in the here and now and say they're light and they're momentary. 
They're light and they're of short duration. It's not that long. Our 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years sojourn in this world is, in, is nothing in comparison to the eternity that he sees set and stretched out in front of him. It's powerful. You know, the way that things are right now are not the way they're going to be forever. That's the message. The way things are right now, what you are experiencing now, the hardest things that you're dealing with now are not the way things are going to be forever. Right now, I see abuse. I see betrayal. I see hatred. I see disease. I see death. I see sin. I see sorrow. I see suffering. But that's not forever. In fact, what he says in the next verse is this. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now I'm not going to lie to you. The things that you and I are dealing with right now are real, and they hurt, but they are not forever They're the things that we see happening right now, but that is not the final and ultimate reality. Jesus has come, and he's bringing redemption into the world. He started something that he is going to finish, and he is reigning and ruling from the Father's right hand, and he is subduing his enemies under his feet, and one day he will subdue even and vanquish even the last enemy, he says, which is death. And all of the evil and all of the suffering and all the pain and all the horrible things that we see and experience around us are going to become things that are a memory and a part of the past. What you see now is not eternal. It's temporary. But what's coming is eternal. You see, the best things on the bucket list are the things that come after you kick the bucket. The best things on the bucket list come after the bucket gets kicked. And that's something that I believe could be a life preserver for someone tonight. Because here's what I know. The stronger your attachment to the next life, the stronger your attachment to the reality that is coming, the less you're going to need from this one. That's going to set somebody free right there. the person that I mentioned at the beginning that might not find this message all that relevant because they do see this life as completely satisfying or this life is all that there is. This could be something really powerful for you because one thing I know about you is that if you view this life as being all there is, then, then you're having to rest all your hopes, all your dreams, all your glory on what's going to happen over the next few years of your life. And here's the truth, and you know this, some level in your being that it's not enough. That this life as it is in this world as it now is, is not strong enough to support the weight of your life, your hopes, your dreams, your glory. And if one thing goes wrong, if one significant and serious thing comes 
comes apart for you, then everything collapses, and with it, so does your whole life. And that's why you're so anxious and so afraid and so controlling and so manipulative and so determined to make sure that everything goes the right way and everybody does things the right way because this life is all we've got. And so I need so much from this life, and this life can't deliver the goods. And you're trying to drive a 10-ton truck over a one-ton bridge, and something's going to give. But once you know that the life to come is where it's at, the ironic thing is that you actually begin to enjoy this life even more because you're not trying to make it into something that it's not meant to be. But not only the stronger your attachment to the next life, the less you need this one, it also means the more pain you can endure in this one. The stronger your confidence, as Paul was, I know that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us up with him. The stronger your belief in that, the stronger your longing for the life to come, the stronger your longing for that day in which all things are made whole, And the more that you give yourself to meditating on that and longing for it and thinking about it, the more capable you become of dealing with the traumas, the disappointments, and the struggles that are a part of this life. And that's what made Paul the man that he was. He didn't have some genetic makeup that just separated him from the normal normal man. He had a belief system. And he had treasure laid up, and he had a confidence in what was ahead that enabled him to endure so much in this life. And then finally, the more attached you are and the stronger your attachment to the life to come, the more good you will do for this one. Because you see, all of a sudden, instead of needing everything to go your way in order to fill your bucket list in this life, that makes you so, again, so demanding of other people and you squeeze your kids, you squeeze your husband, you squeeze your wife, you squeeze your friends and your brothers and sisters in Christ to get out of them everything that you can because you, you got to have it because you're a, 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 a vacuum on the inside and you're just taken and taken and taken because this is all you got. But once you know, no, there's so much more. I've got God in the present and I've got more God in the future ahead of me and I'm so full of his love and his joy and his peace that actually what I've got is something to give. I don't have to take what you can and give nothing back. I can give and give and give because I have an infinite supply from God and from my connection with the life that is to come. Well, I don't know about you, But the waves, they keep on coming, and when they do, we have a choice. And the choice is to lose heart or to be renewed day by day. And our choice will be determined by what frames our perspective, and our perspective will be framed by one of these two things, that this life is ultimate, it's all there is, and I've got to grab for all the gusto that I can. And this life is just horizoned by death. That sin and sorrow and death and suffering have the final word. That they're the undisputed, undefeated champions 
and nothing will ever overcome that. That's the final reality. Or you can be renewed by the faith and the belief that Jesus Christ is the undefeated champion. That he has broken the jaw of sin and the grave. And that he stands victorious not only over his own grave, but over yours as well. And when you look as far into the future as you can see of your own life, and you see your tombstone on the grave, you see standing over it the Lord Jesus Christ victoriously saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And you're going to live triumphantly in view of what you know comes down the road. And so as for me, as for me in my house, I'm not changing my confession or what I believe or who I believe in. Just because the waves keep coming in, I'm going to continue with my eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now risen, seated at the right hand of the Father, and I'm going to be with him and with all those who love his appearing. Don't you long for that day. Spend some time, brothers and sisters, longing for that day every day. Every day is one day closer. Every day is one day closer to where we're trying to get. And so I hope this series that that can help us end on a high note. I know that in some ways talking about the waves is sort of a bit of a downer, but I hope that as we end with our eyes set forward, looking toward the hope that has been secured for us in Christ, we end on a positive note with resolve to live out the remainder of our days for the one who gave everything to make our future hopes a reality. If you're not a Christian tonight, once more in this meeting, we want to offer his invitation to you to come confess his name. Jesus is Lord. I love him. I know he loves me. He gave himself to die for me, and I want to give myself and my life to live for him. And you can be united tonight with him in the waters of baptism and raised, raised up to live that new life with a new hope and a new power to overcome every wave that comes against you. If we can help you in that regard, let us know how, how while we stand and while we sing.